This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edius 6. Check out the new Edius 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, we have Avatar editor Stephen Rivkin. And we're going to talk about his work on The Hurricane. Afterwards, be sure to join myself and Lauren as we add another forward film review hint. As no one has gotten it, one more after this and we're going to retire it. Now before I get into this podcast, there is something I have to explain. It's going to sound a little weird, uh, my voice in it, or it's going to sound very echoey. Or like we had no sound proofing. And there's actually an interesting reason for this. We set the date to record this a year ago, last June. And out of nowhere, the government moved the G20 summit to Toronto, our city. And so when they did this, one of the things they did was during the G20, they would randomly shut down the internet, the phone service, and the cable services. Uh, the idea being that that way people couldn't use cell phones to blow things up or couldn't use the internet to set off anything. The problem is that I use Skype to communicate with the editors when I call them. And so I had to leave the city to find somewhere where I wouldn't be cut off randomly. And I found somewhere, but it wasn't the greatest sound-wise. So it sounds very hollow, and I apologize for that, but if we didn't go to this other place outside of the city, we would have had chances of losing the connection uh, randomly. So besides that, I hope you enjoy this interview with Stephen Rivkin. Carter is the slave name that was given to my forefathers and was passed on to me. Hurricane is the professional name that I acquired later on in life. One thing I could do, and the only thing, was box. Can you believe that black punk? He thinks he's champion of the world. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do. Look carefully, sir. Are these the two men who shot you? He said no. Take another look, sir. Ruben Carter, you are sentenced to be imprisoned for the remainder of your natural life. I'm innocent. Committed no crime. The crime's been committed against me. Dead. Just bury me, please. How did you get your start in film editing? I uh, I went to uh, film school. Well, I, I should say I started uh, putting films together, you know, in my. Uh, uh, adolescent years and into high school and played with Super 8 and 8mm and things like that. And, and I eventually, when I, I, I enrolled my first year in university, I started uh, 
asking professors if I could turn in films for final papers and things like that. And they, they, you know, a couple of them agreed and I made little, little movies and uh, I transferred into my interest was strong. And I um, found that art school locally was offering a film program and that it was a young program, but nonetheless, it was in my hometown. And, uh, I transferred into the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and graduated with a, a BFA in uh, film and television production and started working in the commercial industrial world in Minneapolis. did that for several years, and during the course of my working there, I met a, uh, a commercial director who wanted to make a uh, dramatic film, and he asked me to edit it. I had done some commercial work with him, so he knew me and my work, and he said that he thought it a good idea if he didn't write it, direct it, shoot it, and edit it himself, and I said, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, we made this low-budget film, and it was shot in 16mm, and went to New York and blew it up to 35, and shopped it in uh, Hollywood, played the festivals and things like that, and it got some distribution through Roger Corman's company, and it was a little romantic comedy called The Personals, and it did quite well regionally and, you know, got some recognition. And it, one thing kind of led to the other, and the director got another job in Hollywood. So I started a, I, I want to say, probably a, a six- or seven-year commute back and forth between Minneapolis and Los Angeles, working on feature films and then coming back and working commercial, industrial work, documentaries, things like that, and then uh, finally moved out to Los Angeles full-time. So I guess uh, I'd like to jump to the hurricane. You cut the hurricane with director Norman Jewison, and he's known for being quite vocal about his respect for film editors uh, and the art of storytelling. And a lot of young directors don't understand the importance of an editor-director relationship. Uh, can you tell me what the process was like editing that film with him and how the two of you approached working together? Well, first of all, I had done a couple of films with Norman, and I'll say that working with him is just a joy. I mean, he comes from a vast a wealth of experience and many great films that he's worked on, and we had a wonderful working relationship. Norman is uh, known as an actor's director, but let me say that he is indeed an editor's director as well because he really enjoys giving people the freedom to be creative and he's open to anything. And he's he's often said that he's always surprised, you know, when people bring something to the process that he didn't expect or didn't plan on and that's, you know, that films are living, breathing, life of their own kind of thing, you know. Yeah. There are very wonderful surprises that happen when when people are allowed to experiment and uh that was a that was a really great working experience. That film in particular is one of my favorites. How did you and Norman meet in the first place and get to get a working relationship going? I first worked with him on a movie called Only You in uh, 1994. And this was a, a film that was shot in Italy. And 
I had met him uh, once or twice before that and uh, was recommended by another editor that had worked with him. And uh, actually, Mel Brooks recommended me to him as wow. well because I was working for Mel Brooks on Robin Hood Men in Tights, and mm-hmm. he knew Norman through uh, Agnes of God because his wife, Anne Bancroft, was in that film. So there were, you know... Like any anything, it's a lot of times it's a number of factors that enter into how you hook up with somebody mm-hmm. on a job. And there's an editor named Lou Lombardo who had cut Moonstruck for him, and he was working on other people's money, and he unfortunately had a stroke. And I had worked with Lou on a recut, and his daughter's an assistant who I had worked with a, a couple of times. And Lou had recommended me to go up there to finish his work, but uh, Warner Brothers had someone they wanted to send up. And so it didn't work out on that film, but on the next one, when I was working on Robin Hood, Actually, Lou's daughter, Gina, was working with me as an assistant, and she had told me that Norman was doing a film, and this would be a a good opportunity, because Lou always, you know, wanted me to take over for him on the previous picture, so, Mm -hmm. you know, it just... It, it all kind of worked out, and then you know Mel said, oh, "I'll call, I'll call Norman for you. Absolutely, I know him." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you get a call from Mel Brooks and you have a recommendation from Lou Lombardo, it's you know, it's it's pretty good. The film is a great example of cross cutting between two scenes or two moments in time. And I was wondering if you could tell me how you approach building scenes like this, where you have to cross cut between two storylines. Well, you know, I mean. I've always been fascinated with parallel stories and the possibility of, you know, a revealing a backstory through flashbacks. And there, uh, the obvious films like Citizen Kane demonstrated, you know, for the very first time these types of techniques. And the, um, I mean, I guess in that case, in the sense that it revealed the past, you know, through glimpses of uh, scenes that would illuminate, you know, certain aspects of a, of a person's life. And the hurricane was, was sort of like that, too, because we weren't really seeing everything, and the audience was subjected to having to judge certain things for themselves, guilt or innocence, and wondering if there was the possibility that these guys could have committed this crime, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was done in a in a uh, kind of teasing way so that that we reveal little bits and pieces of the story as we go along through flashbacks mm-hmm. but you know i mean there've been other you know great films many films that have used these techniques and you know i mean you you kind of draw on your knowledge of some of these great films you know like there was an australian film called the breaker morant which was amazing in its structure and style and then there's you know, I mean, numerous contemporary examples of this as mm-hmm. well. But that that was, I guess, I don't know if I've answered your question or not. You were you were asking specifically about working with flashbacks. Well, I was thinking inter- more along intercutting. Yeah, intercutting between two scenes because I've noticed you do that a lot in your work, and I find that it's probably some of the strongest uh, cross cutting that I've seen. And somehow you keep a balance between the two stories, but you still keep a focus and move us forward. Well, I I think that, you know, part of being a good editor is to be able to keep a balance of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are subplots that you you have to juggle 
there's parallel action, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's characters and things that, you know, you have to keep alive. You have to sense when you've got, you need, you need a piece of something, mm-hmm. a piece of a puzzle, continuation of a character. Now, many times these things are written into a script, but there is flexibility, and sometimes what happens on the screen is different than how it reads. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to make adjustments. So in that, in that situation, when you're approaching a director who, to, to discuss rewriting or recutting a scene that they might really like, how do you approach a director in that situation? Well, I, I think that this is where, you know, something they don't, they don't really teach in film school, but mm-hmm. it's very important to be able to present ideas in a way that is diplomatic at times and Timing is essential, you know, when ideas are presented. And in the digital age we live in, you can easily execute things and present them. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the film days, it was a big deal to cut something up a different way and put it together and have to worry about getting it back the way it was if it wasn't liked, you know. (laughs) So so, uh, we do have advantages these days, being able to save versions of things and experiment. Now, I was going to ask you about the boxing scenes in the movie, as well as in Ali. Did you look back to Thelma Schumacher's work on Raging Bull to influence your cutting on these scenes? Raging Bull is certainly, you know, kind of a, a standard in, in the most impressive stylistic boxing mm-hmm. that's, I think, ever been put on film. But as I would approach any film, you're kind of drawing on the footage that you're given. So mm-hmm. if they're not shooting something a certain way, there's only certain things you can do with it. Now, you can envision something to be used in a way that's much different than how it was shot, but mm-hmm. you're still always working with a, a, a certain uh, limitation, you know, I mean, unless you're designing shots yourself, which doesn't often happen, mm-hmm. you know, you work with what you have. Not to say that there's only one way to put something together, because I don't believe that at all. But the boxing scenes were, you know, when they shot slow motion, I took the cue in my head that that's what they were going, that they were going for something a little more stylized. And that meant working with the sound, working with mm-hmm. the way you treated the images, all kinds of things. So you kind of take a cue from a director when you see the dailies Mm -hmm. you try to get inside their head and see what is it they're going for here and sometimes you know it's quite clear at least to me when i'm looking at dailies where that scene should go and fortunately oftentimes you know i i i'm on the same page as a director and you know occasionally if there's a different vision than what I have, then it needs to be communicated to me. So that was part one of my interview with Stephen Ripken. With me now is Lauren Woodcock. Yo. Lauren, no one's gotten a forward film review. I know. I wouldn't have got it if I didn't have a lot of clues from you, to be honest. However, we can give another clue. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's reiterate the original, too. Yeah. So start off with herd bombing. English woman imbues strine wine was the last one. And our new one now is bombs over a drover. Now, if you think you know what it is, you can email us at info at artoftheguillotine.com. You can Facebook us at facebook.com slash artguillotine. Or you can, of course, direct message me at at artguillotine. 
if you get it right and you're the person that the first person to give us the correct answer, then you may win yourself a t-shirt. And it's worth saying that the European sizing is not the yes. same as the American sizing. We found Sorry, that out. Beppo. Uh, we sent a t-shirt out to someone and extra large in North America is very different apparently than extra large in Europe. Yeah, because based on his profile picture, I wouldn't have, um, or no, double XL I think he went for. I wouldn't have pinned him as a double XL. And when he got it, he I would have guessed medium. <laughs> yeah, leave a large, but you know, double XL apparently is, it's, he may have trouble without altering it to wear it on the streets. I think if he keeps an eye out, one might appear. <gasps> really? As a regular size. Nice. Yeah. Aww. But that said, we're going to have lots of shirts to give away at our pub night after Edifest. Yeah, for sure. At least six. So people should be coming to pub tea night. Yes, pub tea night. The pub night information has been posted. You can go to artoftheguillotine.com or aotg.com. Yep. Uh, which we've just purchased. And right now it's directed to artoftheguillotine.com. In a few months, we'll actually set it up so that it is aotg.com. Cool. So yeah, you can go there. There's a little banner on the side that says Pub Tea Night. And definitely check it out. If you're going and you have a Twitter account, uh, Lauren had come up with quite an interesting idea. Yeah. So if you're going to come to the AOTG Pub Night Tea Time, then um, we're thinking it might be interesting to get kind of like a head count for who th who's considering coming, even if you aren't sure yet, but you think it's a possibility and you have a Twitter account, then just send out any, any old message you like, but hashtag it with hashtag AOTG pub night. And we'll do some searches over the next week or two and uh, kind of get a poll. Yeah, and I, I find it funny that you said, you know, type whatever you want, then hashtag. So we're going to get things like, making myself a sandwich. Hey, with each pub night. Yeah. Well, yeah. or, you know, the other thing also to, to think about, this is more of an and than an or, actually. But after you've done your AOTG pub night hashtag, then you can get started on coming up with your own forward film review to send us so yes. that we can keep. Uh, doing these contests and people can keep winning t-shirts which can be purchased at the store on aotg.com yes and be sure to invite all your editing buddies yeah bring in friends or not or not editing we're we're pretty social I, beings here i i need my own peeps because here's how i feel about it I, maybe i've already said this i'll be coming and i'm not really great for moving your career forward <laughs> but i really like chatting what i always worry about is that i'm going to go to one of these pub um, editor gab fests and i'll start a conversation with someone and they'll be like oh yeah we're chatting i'm making connections and then they'll say so like what are you working on i'm like oh i'm not actually an editor and they'll be like wasting my time oh my god so i tend to, to stay around the perimeter to stay out of the way while people do their chatting but if you bring friends, then anyone could be a wild card. Mm. And I'll feel much more in my element. 
So let's let's slam this bar. Yes, they, on a Sunday night. This bar, run by a guy named Mark. Yay, I Mark. said, I said, you know, we're, we run a web page, and this is what we're doing. We're, we're wondering if you, you know, you'd be cool with that. And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. So if and we show said, up with ten it's, people, it's really, it's really quiet there. So you probably won't even need a reservation. Yeah. So I, I say we surprise them with lots of editors. Yeah. So tell as many editor friends as you can. In fact, if you're, if you've just, you know, parked and you're on your way into the pub and you see some someone on the street, say, hey, you should come in here with us. Yes. And uh, just, just just hoard them. Yeah. It's like that game, The Blob, when you're a kid and you just keep running in a massive group. Did you ever I play that? I have no idea what you're talking about. As you would, it was like tag, but in a group. <laughs> and I don't think this is a game, honey. It is. Oh, I want to know if anyone's heard of that game, The Blob. It's like something you'd play when you're like seven years old. And so once you got captured by one person, you were part of the blob, and so everyone had to run together and capture everybody else. What game is this? I the don't blob. Think, I don't think this is a game. Oh, my lord. The blob. Hmm. And if there's any... Uh, Hashtag the blob. If there's... Well, they might think the movie. No. If there's any German editors out there... Hashtag, hashtag the blob the game. I had a few friends from Germany when I was young, and we used to play these German games, which were amazing. German games? Yes. Where? One was uh, based on the Autobahn, and the idea what? was you had to get up to 1,000 kilometers an hour. So it was, it was a card game. Based on the the totally unrealistic things that Canadians think the Autobahn is. Oh, yeah. It's extreme. But it was from Germany. It was like they brought their cards from Germany. Does anyone know about the Autobahn card game? Yes. Please email us. The that, Bob the Game. Yes. And there was one where we had to build, it was like Jenga, but reverse, like you had to build it. Hmm. And it was really popular, apparently. Wait. This is in the 80s, people. What's the reverse of Jenga? You have to build the, the well, thing, but, but it's really, it. really wobbly and hard to build because the pieces aren't correct. Okay, then. And if I'm just making these games up and these are from Dreams, um, patent pending, Patent pending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and trademarked. And trademarked, yes. <laughs> so, Jenga for reals. That's what we call it. Reverse Jenga? You've never played it? <laughs> German Jenga. <laughs> German Jenga. <laughs> yeah, so that's, some of, that's basically what we're going to be doing at the pub night, is it's going to be like a very, very serious and intense tournament of German Jenga, Autobahn, and the Blob. <laughs> and you have to stay focused on the game that you're playing at each table. But also be aware of where the blob is because they may tag you. And I think... It's going to be really intense. Here's the thing. You probably just got a sense of pretty much Lauren's and my conversations. Pretty 90% much. of the time we just ramble and discuss random things from around the world and associate them with other things. So if you want to talk editing, come chat with me. I have no problem. But if you want to talk about random, completely out of the ordinary <laughs> things that... Make no sense. If you're interested you in useless Lauren, conversation, yeah, you talk can talk to, to Lauren or myself. Yeah, I'm willing to talk about random stuff. Yeah, yeah. One other thing I'm interested in is this whole Google Plus thing, which I don't even know why I'm on it because I have nothing to do there. But Tash of Tash's tech blog is all over the Google Plus, and 
Uh, Gord's on there too, and I'm on there, strangely. However, someone that I wanted to do a little shout out to was Eric, who found me and Gord and Tej on, uh, on Google+. And hopefully we will be seeing Eric at the pub night. So, hey, what up, Eric? Yes, I actually met Eric last year at uh, EditFest, and I think he is coming. In LA? Yes. Awesome. And if this is if we're talking about the same Eric, Eric Don't give last name. Eric B. Maybe, maybe he wants to be super anonymous. Okay, well, well Eric B, we won't give last name. Maybe he's cheating on another podcast with us. Oh. Well, his son is so, a super hockey star. And yes, Californian hockey player adored by a Canadian Yeah, I'm couple. thinking autographs when we get there. I mean, I know he's he's not very old. I think he's 6. Awesome. But, uh, you know, we, we can get a few autographs and bring them back up to Canada. Baby hockey helmet. Sure. So cute. Um, I think he's past the baby hockey helmet. No, but like like a, of a family of helmets, it would be the baby. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank Stephen Rifkin for allowing me to interview him. I want to thank the Manhattan Edit Workshop for helping set up that interview. I'd also like to thank the American Cinema Editors and Jenny McCormick. I'd like to thank Lauren Burkell. Yay. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>